when you start really relying on and getting access to data that means something and you start to democratize that across the organization, which is what we want to do within digital transformation, when you start to do that, it changes the company. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up, folks? And welcome to episode 21 of Manufacturing Happy Hour. Today, we are going to be talking about end-to-end digital transformation. Now, we've talked about digital transformation on the show before. Back in episode seven, we had a panel when we were live at Rockwell Automation's 2019 Automation Fair, and we're going to be featuring Rockwell again on this episode, this time with Bob Murphy, Rockwell's Senior Vice President of Connected Enterprise Consulting. Now, I'm going to introduce Bob more in a minute, but what does this whole digital transformation thing mean? Well, the reason we have Bob on the show today is because Rockwell Automation really went through their own journey around connecting their plants and bringing data to a consolidated standpoint where people on the plant floor all the way to executives could make better decisions across their enterprise. So this is a real life story about what digital transformation looks like full of tips and strategies that you can use to go on your own digital transformation journey. One important thing to mention up front is I was considering doing this as a bonus episode because this was actually recorded during one of our mostly weekly virtual happy hours. If you don't know, here at Manufacturing Happy Hour, in addition to being a podcast and a video series, we also throw weekly virtual happy hours within our industry community that's over 200 people strong where we discuss a pertinent industry topic or look at a new technology and by the way we couple that with discussions collaboration and an opportunity to connect with a lot of other industry leaders since this episode is being released in july 2020 it's important to mention that you know if you're listening to this at a later date this is when we couldn't really congregate uh, live in groups so virtual happy hours are a way that we've been using to continue to build connections throughout our industry But before I go on for too long, what are the three things you can expect from today's episode? Well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to cover how to get started with a digital transformation journey and why to get started. Bob talks about this in the context of Rockwell's own digital transformation journey as he gets into our second point, which is what got Rockwell Automation started when it came to their own manufacturing operation. We talk about acquisitions, integrating facilities across the globe, and how inconsistencies when looking at plant-to-plant operations became more apparent. After talking about Rockwell's digital transformation journey, the third and final thing we'll discuss is where digital transformation is starting to change. We actually had one of my early mentors in my career, Scott Feldman, on the call, who is part of Accenture's IndustryX.O team, and he really discusses where digital transformation is going. It's no longer just something that takes place within the four walls of a global enterprise, but something that really extends to the product lifecycle on the back end as well 
as the supply chain on the front end, which puts the final touches on that end-to-end aspect of digital transformation. And I know I usually give you three things. I'm going to give you one more. We have some Q&A after that with the folks that are on the call. But that segues into my next topic is if you are interested in joining the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community, it's very easy to do that. We operate a LinkedIn group on LinkedIn. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. And that's where I update everyone on all of the events that we do like this. So if you hear this episode and you're like, gosh, I'd like to be part of one of those discussions in the future, that is your way to do it. Again, that's manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. And if you want to access any of the resources from this episode, you can always go to our show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 21. That's two one. All right, that felt like a bit of a long intro today, but we've got a slightly shorter episode for you, so let's get to it. It's time to meet up with Bob, Scott, and the rest of the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community for today's conversation. I'd love to introduce our guests for this week. So first, we're joined by Accenture's IndustryX.O team, a group that's combining emerging, connected, and smart technologies to digitally transform industry end to end. And then I'd like to welcome our featured guest today, who is the Senior Vice President at Rockwell Automation for Connected Enterprise Consulting. After this individual led Rockwell through their own digital transformation journey, he now helps other companies do the same by helping them bring their connected enterprise to life. So let's raise a glass to a true docent of digital transformation, Bob Murphy. Welcome to the show, Bob. Pleasure to be here. Thank you much, Chris, for the intro. And uh, Scott, good to be with you as we uh, try and impart some uh, lessons learned and, uh, and learn some things ourselves. Absolutely. We're looking forward to hearing from both of you. And I should give Scott Feldman a specific introduction as well. Scott's my counterpart over at Accenture, who's been helping me co-organize this event. So Scott, it's been great having you as a, as a part of the process. As we get rolling, Bob, to kick things off, we always like to set things in kind of a, a happy hour fashion. So let's say we're at you know a trade show happy hour after the show is kind of wrapped up and Someone comes up and asks you, it's like, hey, you know, I know there's value that can be unlocked through digital transformation. You know, I know there's the technology piece to it, but what else do I need to get started? How would you answer that if you're having a conversation with someone at a happy hour? Yeah, I think the the, the first thing that comes to mind for me, Chris, is um, what's the impetus for embarking on that kind of a journey? There's got to be some compelling reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And and in my opinion, experience, uh, it's all the better if it's a top-down driven compelling reason, one that's, uh, uh, you know, sponsored by um, the chiefs of the organization, but also understood and embraced by everybody in the company. Um, And it's based on hopefully um, a desired different outcome, you know, whether that has to do with profitability, uh, service, quality, lead time, whatever the case would be, those are the greatest motivations versus, as you mentioned, technology, uh, obviously a core critical component of, of any transformation, but, but it is one enabling component. We talk a lot about the other two that mostly come to mind, and that is there is technology, but then there's processes that have to be understood and in some regards redesigned, if not reconceived or reinvented. And, and then there's the whole people, the cultural component. 
if, if we think that we can just slap some new technology in and, and uh, rewrite some procedures from a process standpoint, then everybody's going to be hunky-dory with that. But we're, we're probably wrong. When you start really relying on and getting access to data that means something and you start to democratize that across the organization, which is what we want to do within digital transformation, when you start to do that, it, it changes the company in profound ways. And if we start to uh, have as much respect for what's happening from an overarching process evolution standpoint and what's this doing to the culture, the people, how we get work done, um, if not even organizational uh, design implications, we'll, we'll miss something, it would be my estimation. Great answer. A few things I heard from that, and then I'd love to get in, into a specific example after this. You know, I heard we, we briefly mentioned the technology, but you mentioned there has to be that higher arching goal. You emphasize the process, you emphasize the people. And, and I like how you really, you use some good synonyms to describe transformation, that it is really something that takes a company from a very obvious point A to a very new point B in that process. Yeah. And Prior to the role you're in now, where you're helping a lot of organizations with their own digital transformation and connect enterprise journeys, you were playing a pivotal role in Rockwell's own journey as a vice president of operations. And maybe can you put that last answer into the context of what did Rockwell's own journey like? And then what were some of the results that you saw? Sure. And it, it, it did. I think it encompassed all of what uh, you just repeated relative to the core in ingredients. But I'll start with what really got us on the trek in the first place. And it actually began with um, nearly a decade ago, for the first time in our company's history, we consolidated all of our global manufacturing operations into one operating unit. We had several different um, divisions that house their own manufacturing contingencies. Some of our plants were actually under the auspices directly of businesses through M&A or whatever. And, and, and it was a collection of obviously a lot of different um, operating strategies and a lot of uh, overarching um, uh, structures that uh, while we got along well together, we certainly didn't uh, work towards great ends to make sure we did everything the same way. So. You know, suddenly you slam all of that together into one group and, and a lot of things became apparent, right? We had capacities that in some regards, whether they were by process or by region, that, that were uh, not in place. In, in other regards, we might have had excess capacity that needed to, in some regard, be rationalized. So to put it into context, at, at that point in time, we had 26 plants in, in the mm -hmm. company doing manufacturing in all four regions of the of the globe. And so we underwent and I was put in charge of the kind of the supply chain or manufacturing re-footprinting of the company. This was to, to rationalize where do we need to be and what do we need to be doing where we need to be. So to kind of fast forward to the end in mind of that, we went from in, a, in a, about a two and a half, three year period, we went from 26 plants to 18 plants. And of those 18, six were built in that period completely from the ground up, greenfield. So, you know, you just do that math of the before and after, and it was just massive change. So mm -hmm. we're not just talking about, you know, maneuvering around the supply chain. What, what quickly became apparent for us is 
the differences that existed between all of our various, um, you know, legacy systems, whether those were 12 different ERPs that we were contending with, mm -hmm. you know, a thousand plus applications on the shop floor that we were, uh, you know, suddenly got aggregated together, uh, obviously an untenable amount of variation that we had to contend with. And what really got us staring at that, I, I think more directly than anything else is, as we constructed these six new plants, um, four of them, the largest in the world in the history of our company, we had to make decisions. Well, what were we gonna install in that plant? Mm -hmm. Not just from a people and a process and a, and a product line perspective, but from an ERP, from an overarching system um, and application perspective, what guidance were we gonna use? So it quickly became apparent as we looked at all the legacy that we had, that not much, if any, of what we had installed in any of our plants was truly scalable, capable of being replicated on a global basis. So what we did is we formed a real small team of uh, about six or seven folks that were kind of the, the edge application experts coming from all of those plants. And, and we combined them with six or seven folks from our IT discipline because it was becoming real apparent to us, Chris and, and folks, that IT was having to begin to converge with OT. There was just too much interdependency right across those spectrums that we were missing out on the, 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 the convergence of that. And, and so we formed um, our first MES organization. It was the compilation of those six um, OT experts and those six or seven IT experts. And their charter was to architect what would that um, infrastructural requirement be to, to install in our new plants such that it would equally be capable of then um, modernizing and retrofitting our existing legacy plants in something mm -hmm. that could be far more standard and uniform. So that began our journey into um, literally an MES um, you know, converger of IT and OT. Um, at that point in time, we had just acquired as a company Factory Talk Production Center. And it mm -hmm. became the basis of that foundation. That product has grown and is now a part of, of what we call our factory talk suite of, uh, of, of a platform that is now combined with capability like PTC and otherwise. But it became the backbone that allowed us to begin to consolidate and rationalize and transform how we leveraged information. And so we began to um, be about the integrity of that data. Mm -hmm. be about the visibility of that data across the entire globe. People that weren't used to seeing each other's score, each other's yeah. performance, suddenly it was available to everybody. So that kind of gets back into the, what about people? What about mm -hmm. process, right? How are they going to cope with, with this transparency and this visibility? And then as we began to do that, of course, the standards began to develop. And then we had to figure out, well, who's going to own these standards? What kind of infrastructure is required to create kind of global process ownership for how do we do our core process technologies within our world of manufacturing? So that got into organizational design and governance mm -hmm. of those processes. So again, I think that just kind of supports the early conversation around, yes, there was a lot of technology we were dealing with, but mm -hmm. man, there was a ton of process innovation and declaration. There was a whole bunch of people and cultural and role and responsibility evolution and guidance that had to be created. But the outcome of all of that is that we did create a standard 
of mm -hmm. how we manage and connect our plants to each other and to our businesses and to our customers. And, and the results of that for us as a company were pretty transformative, whether you're talking about um, improvements in quality, improvements in cash flow and inventory management and accuracy, obviously um, service and delivery to our, our customers, but then uh, very importantly as well, direct labor, indirect labor efficiencies and productivity that the before and after of that was just, it, it, for us as a company, it was P&L transformative. It became the largest productivity play in the history of our company and it continues to deliver you know, year over year benefits because the technology continues to enable new opportunities, right? As it evolves. So yeah. that's it in maybe not a nutshell, but as few words as I can spit out. Wow. That is, that's a huge answer. I've, I'm just thinking about all the questions I could ask on top of that, that could make up a full podcast interview in and of itself. But today the goal is to make sure we give everyone in the audience a chance to ask some questions that, that pop up. So I've got one more question um, for you and Accenture um, before we dive into the Q and A. So for those of you that have been listening in and have questions popping up, start populating the chat with, uh, questions you want. So that way we can start answering those after this. Um, P and L transformative, I think was a great way to summarize the impact that it makes to a company. That's one of the big words that stuck out and just all the details that went into it, creating that MES team of IT and OT personality. I can only imagine what it also what it was like looking at seeing 12 different ERP systems and having to figure out how you're going to bring in six new plants at the same time. So much there that we could go in with. But, you know, between the MES standardization and a lot of these global rollouts, one thing I heard you mention in an interview at LiveWorks last year was that digital transformation and a connected enterprise journey, it's an ongoing journey. So there's more that Rockwell is still on at this point. Um, my next question is, and I'm going to start off with Scott um, on this one. You know, what can we expect from digital transformation in the future that makes this an end-to-end -end process? And then Bob will give you an opportunity to answer that as well. Sure. So I, I like the way Bob had kind of described the journey because that really sets the stage for what a lot of companies need to do. Uh, the, the connecting of the manufacturing environment with the rest of the ecosystem to allow you to start driving that optimization, reduce the cost, drive better efficiency altogether is still a key step that a lot of our, our um, companies and clients that exist out there have to take. But <clears throat> when you look at like what's next and what's ongoing, it's, further connecting that uh, whole story out. So it, when we talk about connecting the plants to the other ecosystem, uh, a lot of what we do at Accenture is to help provide that connection between that environment with the supply chain and deep into your suppliers, as well as all the way to the other side of the value chain and actually the consumers. And so with today's technology, with the ability to tie different data sources together, especially with what is being produced in the manufacturing environment, you can now drive efficiencies across that entire value chain. You know, for example, you can look at how can you purchase equipment or raw material from your suppliers in a way that's going to directly correlate to an improvement in yield or throughput in your manufacturing environment. So instead of buying to, uh, purely a forecast or buying based on cost or like a uh, quality received, you can actually evaluate your suppliers and negotiate contracts with them primarily on how they produce in your facilities 
and that allows you to like start optimizing how you can buy, how you produce, where you produce, how you ship, and then ultimately how you can react quickly to what your consumer's demands are. So that's one aspect of the full like NN where you'll see people starting to pivot towards. The other element is really in the, the product itself of whatever a company is making. So uh, what I mean by that is if, with that same idea of that end-to-end -end supply chain value chain effort, you can look at how you can design and develop your products in a similar way. So from the uh, time that uh, somebody creates an idea in their head of a product that they want to make and then go through the effort of engineering how it's going to be designed, the production plans, and then actually providing it to the market. That, that's usually a, typically a long cycle for a lot of companies. And then once you get that in place, then you have to figure out how do we make all this stuff? Where do we buy our raw material? And it's, it's, a, it's kind of a traditional waterfall type of approach. But what you'll see is a pivot towards how can we design our equipment and our, 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 our product in a way that's going to be optimized for how it's made, uh, how we're going to source the raw material, and probably most importantly, how is it going to be able to be serviced by our consumers? You know, how are we going to pivot when their demand changes? Uh, in light of events that are going on right now throughout the world, we're seeing uh, demand fluctuate and fluctuate very quickly in one direction or another. And it's been hard for companies to pivot and react to that. And as they move going forward, they're going to have to look at how do we have that full supply chain to consumer optimization, but in the optimization of the products themselves in terms of when they're designed, how they're made, how they're going to be serviced, and then ultimately a shift in consumer behaviors where instead of just buying a particular product, consumers are shifting more towards a service mindset or an experience mindset. Sometimes it's not enough now to be able to have the world's greatest toilet paper. You know, uh, you, now you have to be able to get that toilet paper through Amazon and I have to make sure that I can get it when I order it and when I want it and not have to experience an outage. Those are the kind of shifts now that companies are going to have to take. And that's a lot of what we try to do at Accenture is help our clients understand how the path uh, can be taken to drive that optimization across that entire value chain and help them at any particular point along the way. Love that. And, and, you know, I, what I'm hearing is, you know, Bob, when you were answering the questions earlier, you know, you talked about a lot of what was going on, like inside the four walls of Rockwell. If I'm hearing Scott, right, we're really talking about what's going on outside of the four walls in terms of that process from the experience and the service afterwards um, to the supply chain on the front end. So Bob, maybe you can wrap up this part of the conversation with, you know, how does this play into an ongoing journey at a company like Rockwell? Yeah, I, I think you, you said it absolutely right. Our initial focus was on-prem. It was within the four walls of those 18, now 20 plants for our company. But it became very apparent in the midst of that journey that there was value off-prem, right? There was mm -hmm. value to the left of the plant in the sourcing and supply chain. And as Scott mentioned, in the design construct. And then there's value to the right side of that plant when you're talking about logistics and network optimization. I'm not talking about IT network, I'm talking about your supply network. And then the, um, the customer use and support, uh, remote or otherwise uh, aspects of the consumer's journey after that. So we've over the past, I would say now four or five years been leaning as much towards 
those pursuits outside of the premise of the plant where that value is created. And, and if I could um, capture what Scott was talking about relative to that value from the design through the setup and the simulation and the manufacturing, the sourcing, the manufacturing, the logistics, the, the after sales support, I think we're really talking about that term that sometimes gets misunderstood um, of the digital thread. And, and mm -hmm. really that's what enables all of that to be um, reasonably and practically connected together so you can extract the value that is important to you. What we learned is that, you know, we had so much data in the plants um, and we were using just a smidgen of it in, in a mm -hmm. meaningful fashion. The fact is the entire supply chain has so much data. And when you can begin to contextualize the most meaningful nuggets of that data, from the design through the sourcing and the manufacturing and the support life cycle, that's when you're really leveraging the most important information that your corporation has. So it's a it's the the embodiment, I think, of that digital thread being realized. And fortunately now technology is proven and capable to support that. It's a matter of how do you in the right stage and fashion um, deploy those technologies to where they begin to enable the productivity that fuels new engagements to explore for the company. Excellent. I love that you took us through the story of what occurred at Rockwell, where it can go for companies in the long run, bringing up the term digital thread. I think that's a, a, still a new way of thinking about a product in terms of its life cycle from start to finish. Excellent examples. We also have some great questions coming in. So I'm going to switch things up to the Q&A section now. Um, I think we'll have time to get through at least two of these before we go into our breakout rooms. Um, one of the first ones that jumps out is uh, from Tim Shope. Um, he mentions that, Bob, you'd said is primarily a top-down driven opportunity in terms of when, when digital, like, digital transformation starts. But how does a local plant or resource get a, you know, a great digital idea? How do they get that idea traction to the chiefs of the organization? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that, that is a superb question because if, if we think that um, these advancements can, can be governed by some central brain and, and, and there's no more any ideation, there's no more any input coming from the feet on the street, which are the manufacturing plants in the context that we're talking about, then what was started is soon going to fizzle out. So I, I think we, we tried to begin with that end in mind that we had to have some central capability that was having process ownership globally for trying to drive the best standards and the best solutions for the corporation. But we had to create a living ecosystem of inputs and ideas coming from the plants as to how do we evolve the next generation of capability. So the, the means by which we've done that is actually very simple. Um, all of our global process owners have created global user groups and they meet on a monthly or bi-monthly basis. And whether you're talking about in our world, um, injection molding or printed circuit board manufacturing, or um, testing mechanisms. The need to, to pulse how is what we've released as an initial construct of a global standard, how is that playing in Peoria? How is that playing in Singapore? How is that playing out on the West Coast? And make sure that we continue to listen and evolve those, um, those developments with the user in mind. So they have to have a voice. But I'll go back to the initial um, comment, which is, 
they have to be top-down driven uh, as well. There has to be that sponsorship at the top of the organization as to why global standards and a degree of uniformity with an appropriate license for tailoring where that's required, there has to be some sense of governance around that. Or I could assure you in the last 10 years, Rockwell would have probably devolved again into islands of solutions, right? Uh, that could not be leveraged and, and taken advantage of. So you gotta find a way to blend that together. The question is so great and, and the answer is not all that difficult. You just have to provide a voice for the users to begin to speak to those that own the process globally and help advise them onto what the next best developments and, and ideations need to be about. And it's not all that tough to do. You gotta have good ears though. Yeah, to add on to that, Bob, we see a lot of the same thing in that um, companies too often will get caught in proof of concept where they are trying to prove that the technology works. And that's not a scalable approach because what may work in your plant is not going to work anywhere else. It's more of a focus on proof of value. What can be replicated and what's going to be something that would be universal for other teams. And a lot of what we see too that is successful is when clients put together uh, almost an innovation team, that network, whether it's existing at a plant or multiple plants or a combination of people that represent different production environments and even businesses, sales, legal, et cetera, to help innovate how are we going to create something new and that can be almost a, a bottom up approach. But again, yeah, it doesn't go anywhere unless you have that executive sponsorship. So in uh, one of our next questions coming in, and I'm going to preface this with, we have a lot of systems integrators and equipment manufacturers that attend these calls. Um, this is coming from one of our equipment manufacturer partners. Um, Carl is asking, how big of an investment is it for an organization to implement something like this? And, and maybe more importantly, how are the benefits quantified? Well, I'll speak to it from the standpoint of, of, of a Rockwell perspective and then many of the clients um, that we entertain uh, along with our alliance partner Accenture now uh, in terms of those journeys and those pursuits. Um, the investments can range from several hundred thousand dollars to as much as if you're talking about an end-to-end -end enterprise transformation of major processes up to literally 30, 40 million dollars. So how did the price tag suddenly get to 30 or 40 million dollars? Well, remember, we're talking about managing information in a far more meaningful way. And that begins with data. It begins with networks. It begins with the solvency and security of all of that. So the initial foundation for a, a total transformation might be the need to evaluate the current install base of a network topology and if that's found to be one thing, they may have to invest, a company might have to invest several million dollars, up to 10 or 12, to get their network topology ready and capable of serving up the right information at the right time in the right fashion. So you can see how this can begin to compound, but that can be just tens or, or a few hundred thousand for a smaller instance. But I'll go back to, in part, what Scott was just alluding to, the, the proof of value is what matters. Every single step you take has to be validated in the return on that investment. And, and I know Accenture and our combined opinion is you do that in an incremental scaled fashion. Neither of us and most that work around this type of, of, uh, 
uh, competency and, and inference are big on the big bang theory, right? You take steps that prove the value of a given capability from a digitally enabled footprint. You see what that's doing from your cost of quality, from your cost of service, from your working capital, and you take those gains and you reinvest that in the next stages. But most importantly, Scott alluded to this, it can't stay in a pilot or a localized construct. And it also can't be eked out to perfection because both of those are gonna yield far less than what any of our corporations are in, entitled to. We have to take a good enough um, value statement and we have to, to validate it and then begin to proliferate it across the enterprise. And the math becomes simple, right? If you've got something that is 70% good, delivering $10 million of value a year, to get that into the system and deployed versus waiting for perfection to be realized on that two to three years down the road, the math becomes pretty simple in terms of what the company is gonna return. So incremental steps providing incremental validations of value and proofs and then that becomes entirely self-funding from where you go and where you grow next across the enterprise. That's been our experience. It was within our company and with the companies that we're working with from a, you know, their transformational journeys. Scott, anything to add? I don't think I could say much better, Bob. I, I think uh, nobody likes to spend $40 million, but I think the, uh, I, I don't think people do. I, I think that the approach is a lot of what you outlined that when you have defined the business case that can be replicated and scaled, even if it's not perfect, you allow yourselves to get that money, that extra value now, which, or at least uh, in the near term, which allows you then to basically fund the next initiative and then the next initiative. And so when you look at it from a, an agile, repeatable fashion, you can innovate and then once that starts to show value and you're able to scale it out and realize the economy of the, the scale of that value, your next initiative that should be a springboard right off of that is almost self-funded. So you are in reality, if you do it right, you're spending that $300,000 instead of the 40 million, at least up front. That's right. One last question before uh, we jump into breakout rooms. And I apologize, we're not going to get to every question today, but I will give you guys an opportunity to connect and keep the conversation going afterwards. Um, last question, this really gets to the people standpoint. And since, um, just to keep on time, if uh, Bob and Scott, if you can give your best one minute answer to this one, um, this hits on the people aspect of this. What stands out as a key attribute of overcoming fear of change and uncertainty of starting this transformational journey? That comes from Dan McCarthy. Scott, why don't you start off and I'll okay. So I, I think um, the big thing to, to make sure that people understand is that it's, it's almost not of a choice. You can pivot and pivot wisely to go after uh, these transformation efforts or you can sit back and allow your competition to do that and get a major competitive advantage on you. Because when you're talking about these massive changes, they can be millions to, to billions of dollars in savings. And that is not going to be a position you want to be in when your competitors do it. But to get over the human element of it and to do it in a practical way, a lot of what we do is think big um, in terms of what you want to do, but start small. And when you start small, you do so in a way that's going to be scaling and you focus on scaling fast. So I think that's kind of the, the buzz phrase that I would say is think big, start small, scale fast. <laughs>
You know what I'd add to that, Scott, and that was phenomenal, is that um, you know so much of the the hesitancy of people embracing this change is the um, the age old um, NIH not invented here, right? There there are some central resources somewhere that are helping to architect a new way forward with technology, with process, with structure, and and the hesitancy is only natural for all of us, right? We're comfortable in our setting. And as soon as we can expedite the, the truth that we're not here to take over and, and, and usurp your innovation and your ideas, we're here to add value. And when they can begin to see that as we democratize data and standardize systems, that they are the benefactor of that, that we show and validate the proof points of incremental quality performance and delivery performance and operational productivity performance. The greatest naysayer about why I shouldn't go there has to, to, to ante up and listen and, and take stock of what's changing. So um, there have to be proof points. We have to embrace that it's difficult for people to suddenly change using one system to another. But as we show the value incrementally at some point, they're going to willingly catch on, and the pull becomes far greater than the push. That's been our evidence of it, but you have to prove the value in no uncertain terms. So the onus is on that burden of proof from that return on investment, as we've talked about a few times. Love that. Scott, Bob, thanks so much for leading us in this fireside chat portion of the conversation. I'm going to set us into breakout rooms at this point for about 12 All right, folks, what'd you think of that? A little different, not the typical one-on-one interview, but cool to have the whole crew there for the conversation. But on that note, I definitely need to get Bob back on for another full-length episode. That guy is one of the most experienced and passionate individuals I know around digital transformation, the connected enterprise, or really just operations and manufacturing in general. So if you like what you heard, tweet me, hit me up on Instagram, whatever it is, at MFG Happy Hour. That's the way to find us. Would love your feedback on this episode since it was a little different than what we normally do. And definitely want your feedback if you want to hear more from Mr. Murphy. As my call to action for you today, since this was part of one of our virtual happy hours, I would encourage you to join the Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community. This is a great group for connecting with other forward-thinking individuals in the industry, attending events like these, and having conversations like this on a regular basis. All event invitations are posted to our group on LinkedIn, which you can get to by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. Hope to see you there. Whether you're just joining the Manufacturing Happy Hour crew or you've been listening for a while, if you like the show, I'd encourage you to leave a five-star rating and review for the podcast over at Apple Podcasts, otherwise known as iTunes. Very easy to get there as well. You just go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. Leaving that five-star rating is easy. You just hit that five-star button. Reviews don't have to be hard either. They can be as short as one sentence and that type of feedback really puts the show on the map, really helps us understand what we should continue to do here on the show. 
So hope to see you there. And finally, if you want to access any of the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can do that by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 21 for the show notes to today's show. And with that, we'll be getting back to our traditional one-on-one interviews next week. So in the meantime, stay innovative, stay thirsty, and we'll catch you back here on Manufacturing Happy Hour real soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.